Let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. And today we're preaching from chapter 22, from verse 39. Um, or we'll read at least from verse 39 all the way down to verse 62. 39 to 62. <clears throat> Verse 39, coming out he, that is Jesus, went to the Mount of Olives and as he was accustomed, as he was accustomed and his disciples also followed him. When he came to that place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose up from prayer... And had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And while he, that is Jesus, was still speaking, behold, a multitude. And he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And, but Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat together, Peter sat amongst them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he, that is Peter, denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not one of them. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. 
Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you shall deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Amen. We're in the, the last few hours of Christ's life before the crucifixion. And if you remember from last time, we were in the garden with Christ. We had traveled from the, the upper room where Christ had celebrated the Passover, where he had transformed that Jewish ritual into something else. That he used the elements of it, certain elements of it, and he pointed them to himself and he transformed them into something more now. A remembrance of himself, a proclamation of his death until he should return. While they were at that meal, Jesus announces that one shall betray him, one shall shall be a traitor. And they go around the table, surely not I, Lord, surely not I, surely not I. One of the disciples says to John, who is leaning on Christ, ask him who it is. Jesus says to the one whom I shared the bowl. And he stretches out his hand and his hand touches the hand of Judas as they're kind of taking a little bit of the dip. Remember, they had dip, like a, a bitter guacamole. And Jesus looks to, to Judas and says, go about what you're supposed to do. And Judas gets up and they were told in the Bible that Satan, the devil, enters Judas at that point. And he goes out into the night. The rest of the disciples, not suspecting Judas, not suspecting Judas at all, think that Judas is just going out to do some message for Jesus, not understanding what he's about to do. The meal continues and it ends with Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. They sing a song and then Christ arises and as is his habit, he goes out to spend the night in prayer. And we're told that he travels down through the city, leaves the city and crosses the, the, the Kidron Brook. And as I told you, the Kidron Brook was a dry stream. It was an overflow stream. It wasn't. It didn't have water in it all year round. The water only came when when the heavy rains came. It's on the steep, the clip apart of, of of the city, and so it's more of a ravine. And during the the rainy season, it would flood. But what is more interesting, during the sacrifice time. When all those animals, we're talking tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of animals being sacrificed, their throats being cut, the blood being drained. At the altar and at the sacrifice where they, they slaughtered the animals, there was a drain in the middle of the courtyard. And that drain went down through the foundations of the, of the temple and out to an overflow point like a... A, a drain and that drain emptied into the Kidron Brook and during the time of sacrifice during that weekend because the blood had to go somewhere and they might as well get rid of it 
And during that, that week weekend where these sacrifices were taking place, there are accounts, records of the Kidron overflowing with the blood, the guts and the gore of the sacrifices. It was a, a river of blood. And at this evening and this night, Jesus is crossing the Kidron and it is a visual reminder of what will happen. That it takes death to forgive sin. It will be by the power of his own blood that he accomplishes redemption for his own people. He enters into the garden and we know it to be a a walled orchard. It's an orchard that's enclosed. It was a public place. Where everyone could go to crush their olives. They had a a big press there. And he goes because it's a quiet place. It's only used once or twice a year. And he can have a little bit of privacy there. He's there. We know that this must have been his habit. Because Judas knew where to find him. This wasn't a one-off account. He wasn't just doing this. You know, spontaneously, Judas knew exactly where he would be, when he would be there. So Jesus demonstrating the importance of a lifestyle of prayer. The importance of a regular, diligent, disciplined prayer life. If the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself while here on earth, still fully man, demonstrates that he had to be dependent upon God in prayer. How much more must we, his disciples? We saw the agony in the, of his prayer time. I mean, it's the stuff of legends, isn't it? It's the stuff of legends. He didn't just pray five, ten minutes, you know, and then get up and wonder. I mean, he wrestled in prayer. He, he, he was anguished in prayer. We know this because he exerted himself so much that he sweat. Sweat, is that how you said? He was sweating. He was drenched in sweat. The agony was so great. Indeed, we're told that his, not only was he drip, the sweat dripping off him like he was leaking blood, but indeed, the... the, the the capillaries in his skin under the stress and strain under the anguish began to burst and he did indeed begin to, to sweat blood. So great was the pressure. So intense was the agony. And he was praying not simply for himself, but for us. In order that, that he might endure the trial that was to come. And the fascinating thing about this while he is praying Judas is about his work Judas just didn't go in and whisper and then that was it we see from what happened next that there had to be a whole uh, a parade of events that had to happen cascading event from event he went to the high priests he went to the to the chief priests the elders to the the temple captains and reported where Jesus was. And then they themselves had to go get the soldiers and their temple police. 
And there was a, a moving from one place to another to another. And so much so that the whole city must have been alive with action. We're told that during this time an angel appears to him and he's refreshed or restored. And then he begins again and he prays again. And during this time, the disciples who are overcome by sorrow, overcome by weariness, by the spirit of giving up, they've just stopped. They've given in to tiredness and weariness. They've given in to the, this kind of whatever will be, will, will be, a kind of hyper-predestination. There's no, there's no point praying about it. If, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And you can't change the future. And they resigned themselves. They gave themselves over. They submitted themselves to a kind of hopelessness. And they fell asleep. And Jesus comes and there they are asleep. And he's rebuking them. He's telling them off. He's saying to them, you know, pray for your own sake that you don't fall in this temptation. Not that you won't be tempted, but rather that you won't fall while being tempted. That you won't be overcome in this temptation. And as he is communicating, exactly in the moment where he's rebuking and encouraging and disciplining his disciples, perhaps in, in, the, in the, the act of encouraging them, come on boys, buck up, come on boys, cheer up, don't give up. There's a, a sound, and it's not a small sound. I don't know if any of you have ever seen The Passion of Christ, the, the Mel Gibson film. I don't know if I would recommend it, but you know it's a very bloody uh, crucifixion scene in it. But when the, the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, there's only a handful of them. There's like six or seven of them or something, you know, and they're all it's a big empty garden. And it's this kind of a experience where, you know, the, you feel the emptiness and the loneliness and the intimacy of this. Let me tell you, the scriptures tell us it was not so. Two of the gospels tell us that it was a multitude, a crowd, a riot of people. One of the gospels tells us that it was a great multitude. Not just a riot, but like a, a giant riot of people. And indeed, in the gospel of John, John says that there was a, a, a cohort Spiran is the Greek word. It means a, a division, a garrison of soldiers. It would have been a part of the Roman legion who was there. We know that because it tells us in one of the other gospels that they came with swords, or even here, they came with swords. And the only people who were allowed to actually use swords in official business were the Roman soldiers. So it wasn't just one or two people coming to get Jesus. If it was a spearing, a spearing is a, 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 a part of a tenth of a Roman legion. 600 men at a minimum. A legion could grow or, or maximum it could have been 1,200 people. At a minimum, and we, we take the, the conservative estimate, 
that at a minimum it would have been 600 soldiers dressed and ready for war who had come. But the Bible also tells us that they were not alone. But that the high priests, the captains of the temple, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders, they were there too. So it's both the religious and the, the political power are there. But they're not there just by themselves. They have the temple police with them. So what you're actually seeing here is a, a crowd of people, a mass of people made up of professional soldiers, the military. All the soldiers that would have been um, stationed in Jerusalem at that time. It's thought that they were the same band, there's that word used in the Bible, band of soldiers that were garrisoned in Fort Antonia on the northeast corner of the temple. The Romans had a garrison of their soldiers just to remind the Jews who was really in control. So they had their soldiers garrisoned in the temple. 600 of them. And then... A conservative estimate of the temple police, about 400 people. 400. If they brought all the police with them, if they brought all their temple guards with them, as a show of force, there would have been 400 police officers. We're told here that they had their clubs with them. Their batons. Big, heavy there's diagrams of them that have been recorded. They've taken off you know, the, the, the engravings and stuff, the statues that they have in, in ancient Rome showing pictures. And they were a club that was made up of, of a, a, a bunch of bands. There were uh, pillars, not pillars, called like bamboo rods, but they weren't bamboo rods. And they were all bound together. It was a light but strong and sturdy weapon so that when they hit people, the, the pieces of wood, would, wouldn't, would, they would open a little bit and it would literally cut you. So they're bashing. They weren't allowed cutting weapons. The Jewish police were not allowed cutting weapons because the Jews were notorious for their rebellions. So it was against the law for a Jew to have a bladed weapon. That's why the zealots had those knives, you know, it was against the law for them to have those knives because they killed a, a, a Roman or a collaborator anytime they saw them. So the, the Jews came up with these kind of clubs that were able to bash you and slice you, nip you, tear the flesh off you. And so they're, they're there representing in the garden. And Jesus is there. The Bible tells us in the book of John that as they approach... Well, we'll do the, the kiss bit first. Judas, in his approaching, he approaches Jesus. And he comes, and we all know the Judas kiss. That's, again, the stuff of legends. He approaches Jesus and goes to kiss him. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, Friend, will you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And I think that's so telling. First of all, Consider the hypocrisy of Judas. The Judas who was one of the twelve. 
who had received delegated power and authority, who had been sent out on a missionary journey, who had been with Jesus, was so trusted by the disciples and Christ himself that he had control over the money bag. That's, that's some responsibility. You don't give that to the person that you don't have confidence in. Here's a man who has played the role of a Christian for three and a half years. He has walked with Jesus, endured the trials, all the hardships, been in the highs and in the lows. Outwardly, the real deal. Probably a super apostle. Probably more, uh, said all the right things in all the right places. You know Peter, Peter said everything wrong. Peter does everything wrong, says everything wrong, makes every mistake that you can make. You think to yourself, why on earth, Jesus, would you put him in control when he is just a blundering mess? But Judas, in his hypocrisy, he probably dressed the right way, spoke the right way, said all his vows correctly, didn't speak in slang. He probably said all the right terms, you know, all the reformed terms, you know. He played the part perfectly. So much so that when he approached Jesus in the garden, leading this multitude, this crowd, this army of people coming to get him, the disciples didn't respond. Nobody responded. Everybody just thought, what's going on here? Judas, what's, what's happening? Judas, Judas. You don't see any... Alarm bells. You don't hear Peter shouting, I knew it was you. I've always suspected you. His hypocrisy, his deceit is mind-blowing. And Jesus refers to him as friend. There was no admon- There was no bad feeling from Jesus' side. Jesus never treated him differently. Jesus never ostracized them. He had no excuse for, he couldn't say, well, no, Jesus left me out. He was bad to me. I I wasn't part of the inner circle. I wasn't one of the real guys. No, the heart of Christ was positive towards Judas. Even though he knew that Judas would betray him, there was still, Jesus probably still liked Judas. He was his friend. Think of the depth of that hypocrisy. Judas, who the Bible tells us was a devil from the beginning. Isn't there great lessons there? Isn't there for us? To self-examine. To really... I think Judas probably believed that he believed. Right up until the end. I think he was self-deceived or he wanted to be, he wanted to fit in or he maybe he, he thought that this would be, you know, that he would end up ruling as one of Jesus' princes during the coming of the kingdom. But there is, there is such a lesson there, such danger that any of us, all of us can be self-deceived. All of us can play the role of the hypocrite you know, we condemn Judas for his traitor's kiss. We condemn him for 
him selling Jesus for a, a paltry sum. I mean, he only got 30 silver coins, which was nothing. It was the price of a cheap slave. It, 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 hand, a handful of coins, really. It's nothing tremendous. It's, it's not like... It was a blood price for a runaway slave. But there wasn't really any, any profit in it. But yet he was so greedy for money that he, could, he took whatever he could get. Better something than nothing. And he compromised his position, his position in the faith, in the friendship of Christ, in the, the ruling of the kingdom. And he sold it all down the river, flushed it down the toilet for a handful of silver coins. What hypocrisy. And again, what a lesson to be learned there. That we must be self-aware. And again, I, I said, we, we condemn him for his traitor's kiss. How often you know, have we almost come to that position? How often do we sell Christ out? We don't speak when we're supposed to. Or we close our eyes. We play the outward role of being a Christian, but inwardly we're far from him. We're not there with him in the garden, praying and interceding. We're off doing other things. Judas, perhaps the greatest actor who's ever lived. The greatest performer. The betrayer. We're not told very much about him. The Gospels don't go in to, and condemn him and, and, and say bad things about him. He's just portrayed as he, as he was. When he was to... After Judas had kissed him and held him, and the... The chief priests and the elders and the scribes and the Pharisees are there. The captains of the temple, they're there. And probably also the head of the garrison. The, 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 it wasn't a general, like, like a captain of the Roman garrison. And Jesus, Jesus asks them, he tells us in the Gospel of John, Jesus asks them, who are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he replies to them, I am. He uses the Greek, you know, I am who I am. The, 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 I am God. And as he says that, the, those who are gathered around him, the, that vast army of a, perhaps a thousand armed men, stumble back and fall to the ground, the Bible says. And they get up. They dust themselves off and they're ready for bear. They're ready for war. And they, they say again. And Jesus asks them again, who, who are you here for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Says, that, that's me. And so, bolstered and strengthened by this falling down, the, the Jesus in his strength 
demonstrating again his divinity, his power, that he's not the victim here. Boistered by that, we are told that one of the disciples, and again in one of the other gospels, we're told that it was Peter. One of the disciples, in his enthusiasm, in his wanting to protect Christ, in his passion, enthusiasm is a good word, draws his sword. Now remember, it wasn't the sword, it was a big carving knife, a cleaver if it were. A meat knife, multifunctional knife. He swings it. And he hits the, 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 the ear, he cuts the ear off one of the servants of the chief priest, or the church, chief priest's servant, who was probably in front of the chief priest. I doubt that he was going for the servant, he was going for the chief priest, and the chief priest probably put the servant in the way. Jesus stops it immediately. Enough. And that alone, that attack with a knife alone should have been Enough to get Peter crucified. The legal recourse for Peter's attack on a, an official or the servant or the slave of an official was that he would be crucified. Remember, he did it in front of everybody. He could even say, you know, it was an accident. And he did it in front of the Romans. You never want to draw a sword in front of the Romans. They, those men didn't mess around. If they even thought they were in danger, they killed everybody. Not just a few, everybody. But in order to protect Peter, in order to save Peter's life, Jesus touches the man's ear. I don't know if he picked it up off the ground, you know, stuck it back on, or he just touched the man and another ear. Can you imagine if he touched it and another ear grew, and he picks his old ear off the ground, and he's like, what? He does this in order that there's no crime. In order that Peter's not guilty of anything. You know, what are you going to... Well, he cut off your ear. Well, where's the evidence? It's right here. He must be released. And at that point, they seize Jesus and the disciples scatter. And Jesus says to them, which is here in, in, in Luke, in the end of 52 and 53, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? And that's how we know that they were Romans and police. When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. I thought this is so contrary to how we as human beings work. We like to negotiate from strength. We, we think that when, to overcome a trial, there must be, we must conquer. It's not, a, it's not in our nature, for the most part, to kind of give up or to give in. But here in this conversation, we see Jesus Christ resigning himself, surrendering, submitting himself to the events that are about to happen. You know, when we have a trial in our lives, we pray and we pray, Lord, deliver us from this trial. Lord, don't let me go through these difficulties. Oh God, and we fast and we pray. And if things look dangerous and, 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 and difficult, we call others together and we get together and we pray even harder. We might fast even more. 
write a, write a text to our friends and other pieces places of the world. Pray for us that we might not endure this difficulty. But we don't see that with Jesus. When the time came for the trial, he did not resist it. He submitted himself to the will of God and knew what was about to happen. You don't see this uncomfortableness. You don't see this, I need to win. He resigns himself. He submits. He is passive. And they seize him and they take him and we look at those things. But how contrary is that to how we work as human beings? You know, the Bible says, For my ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so my ways are above your ways. God functions differently than we do. The ways of Christ are not the ways of ours. Indeed, it says in the Bible, There is a way that seems right to man, but leads to death. And indeed, the the sin of the people of Israel during the time of the book of Judges was that every man did what was right in their own heart. Whatever they thought was right, they did. And yet the Bible tells us here, and through the example of Jesus Christ, that any sense of self-preservation, any sense of, of, of restricting or resisting what was about to happen went out the window. He simply gave himself and by doing so, he overcomes. He dies. I mean, we, we would say, if you look at it from the world's point of view, Jesus failed. He is... Unlawfully arrested. He is tried in a mock trial. It's a setup. Bring all these witnesses in who speak against one another, contradict one another. It's ridiculous. Jesus then sent the one official to another official. He sent before the people. The people then reject him and he's given over for crucifixion. To be murdered, to be killed, all in the short by his followers, by the ones who came to see it. And to human eyes, he has failed. Leaders who want to build a kingdom don't behave like that. Isn't that what Jesus' own brothers said to Jesus? Those who want to have some sort of position. In this world, they don't behave like you. That was the criticism of Jesus' own brothers against Jesus. We must understand and recognize that God does not intend for us as a church, as believers, to behave and to respond like the world. The wisdom of God is indeed foolish to men. And that is It's upside down and back to front. We don't understand it. It seems ridiculous to us. But in the providence of God and in the economy of God, it works out. Because it's to God be the glory, not to you or I. 
things that you and I look upon and think to ourselves, that's never going to work. That's dangerous. That's ridiculous. Oh, 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 he's failing. He's going, oh no. What will happen? And yet we see Christ at peace, confident that God will fulfill his word. What's exciting? We're seeing right now in this text the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy that was made in Genesis. Do you remember that prophecy that God gives Adam and Eve? That Satan, the snake, shall bruise the heel of the seed of woman. That's this. Jesus knows those prophecies and he recognized that this must happen. But what is the consequence of that serpent who strikes at the heel, who bruises the heel? Does not the seed of the woman then crush the head of the serpent? Satan played his role. These men, these officials, and the armies, and the police. Again, think of that. Think if the police, like every police officer in this district, and the official army, I know Finland doesn't really have an official army, not Urkis army, but whatever, you know, in full combat riot gear with their machine guns and their, all up here just to arrest somebody. Be crazy. Absolutely crazy. Think of those riot police you see, you know, wrestling with rioters on the news. And they turn up to arrest one of us. Think of those pastors in Canada with the police who surround the church and arrest them. Think of the, the police officers or the, the pastors in Canada who were pulled out of their car. Remember the, the police? I don't know if you saw them. The police, uh, they, they, the two pastors were in the car and they were coming back from an outdoor church service. And the police stopped the motorway. They, they put a block, blockade, roadblock, that's what the word is, a roadblock on the motorway, on the freeway. So that when the pastors pulled off on their way home, they had to stop at the, at the, the, the roadblock. And they were all there with their, with their guns. All the pastors had in their car was their phones and their Bibles. And I don't know if you've seen it, but they, they forced the pastor on his knees, hit the, the two of them, and had their hands up. And the riot police run over and they handcuffed them and... And then the, the, they're like, stand up. And the, the Polish pastor who's arrested from Canada, he's screaming, Nazis, Nazis, you guys are Nazis. And they're trying to get him to stand and he won't stand. And so they, they lift him bodily by his handcuffed arms and by his feet. This happened just a few weeks ago. Indeed, three pastors in Canada have been arrested just recently. And in prison, and are in prison right now. In our minds, we think, oh, that's crazy, that's wild, what's, what's going to happen? That's the end of the world. Oh my goodness, what will we do? We're losing! But in the economy of God, in the plan, and the purposes of heaven, we don't know what's about to happen. We don't know the blessings and the, the, the explosion of growth that will come to the church. You know, in every age where the church has been persecuted, it has grown. 
Indeed, the, the, the old saying was that the, the blood of the martyrs is the, 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 the fuel. It's water of the church. It's the growth of the church. As the world seeks to stamp us out, God just makes us grow more. So, beloved, let us not fear or worry or panic over the, the hardships of this world, the difficulties, the things that we would look at in our earthly mind and think, oh, I, 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 don't, I, I, I don't want to get arrested. I want to get arrested by the, 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 the police. None of us do. But if such a thing was to happen, let us resign ourselves to the fact that God is in control. And though we may not understand the plans and the purposes of it, let us understand and know that all these things have been foreordained. That God is in control. That He is accomplishing His plans and His purposes. And let us endure it with a Christ-like spirit. Not with a fearful heart. Not with a stubborn, resistant heart. You see, Jesus resigned Himself to the fact he submitted, went into full obedience mode, knew that these things must happen, and endured the shame of the cross. But the disciples, they fled and they hid. We'll see the experience of Peter just as one particular. But the disciples who had not tarried in prayer and who had given into sorrow, into pessimism, who had no, they were no longer holding on to the promises, claiming and crying out to God, Lord, fulfill your word. When the time came for them to stand in the trial, they fled. They fled. And of course, in the economy of God, that was to happen. Strike the shepherd and the sheep shall scatter. Let us remember the lessons. Not just read the story and think, oh dear gosh, that was terrible. If I was there, I wouldn't have run away. Or, you know, wow, Jesus. You know, Jesus warns the, the crowd that, that he said that he, he could call 12 legions of angels. 12 legions of angels to come. Or maybe it was 13. Legions of angels to come and defend him. To tear down the strongholds of his enemies. But yet he did not. Why? And I'm sure all those angels were ready to go. I'm sure all those angels were, were, were like, Let, what's happening here? We don't understand what's going on. What was happening here? And they were ready. You can't treat the creator that way. But Jesus withheld them. Did not allow that. And he endured the indignity. The shame. The dark and dangerous trial that fell upon him. And he did that not for his own sake but for our sake. He's there in the garden, not for himself, not because he has committed crime, not because he has done anything wrong, but because he stands there 
and is active there as a, a substitute in our stead. He is liberating us. He will redeem us. Beloved, when we look at the characters here in, in the garden, we look at Christ himself, Judas, the mass, the, the riotous mass, the soldiers and the police who are there. We look at the disciples. Each one of them has a lesson to tell us. Jesus with his resignation, his perfect surrender to the will of God. Judas with his perfect hypocrisy. Playing the part, outwardly playing the part, but inwardly negative, bitter, opportunist. We look at the the chief priests, the scribes, the temple uh, captains. Think how hard their heart must have been. Even in that moment when they're coming to arrest Jesus and one of their own gets his ear chopped off and Jesus picks up the ear perhaps and puts it back on and performs a miracle. The last miracle that he ever performs. Without any faith, the, the, the servant doesn't ask, Lord, heal me, I believe in you. Jesus takes it, sticks it on and says, oh, let's not let things get out of hand here. Plop. Think how hard their heart must have been. See the fools, and I use that word, who say that if we can only perform miracles, people will believe. They don't know their Bible. Christ performed miracles to the, before the very people who were, who were going to destroy him. And yet they did not care. Their hearts were so hardened, so perfect was their hatred for Christ. that They did not care. It would not matter what would have happened. They wanted rid of him. We look at the disciples. The disciples with their misunderstanding and their perfect mess, I like to call them. Perfect mess. Ordinary people just like you and me. And that's so encouraging. They... When time came to stand, they could not stand, and they fled, and they failed. But you know the good news is? They're still disciples. They might have faltered and failed, but Christ never gave up on them. And when the time came for them to be restored, they were restored. Isn't it wonderful to know that despite our failures, despite our inconsistencies, Christ still has a hold upon us and he will not let us go. None of us will ever fail as much as these disciples did. Peter with his great failure, with his great denial. John with his running away naked. The abandoning of the Lord. Remember these men a few hours ago were all, were all testifying of how they would not leave him nor forsake him. That they would be prepared to go to death and, and uh, prison and death. None of us, beloved, will ever come close to this failure. And yet they were restored. Let us be confident in our position and his affections not because of our actions, 
but because of his action on our behalf. So much for us to learn here. Hope we can get a hold of this. Let us be more Christ-like in our submission. Let us separate ourselves from the hypocrisy. Let us flee from that hypocrisy of, of Judas, the outward and none of the inward. Let our hearts not be hardened as the, the Pharisees. Let us not deny with our eyes. It's not just our way or no way. Let's not be like the disciples in their prayerlessness and failure. But let us also take strength from the fact that just as they, though in their failure, were restored, so we too will be restored. And that Christ will not leave us nor forsake us. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we we cry out to you this day. We ask, oh God, that you would help us. Lord, we desire to be more than what we are. We desire to know you better. We desire to love you better. We desire to serve you better. Lord, we desire to be more at peace. To have a, a greater discipline in the, the spiritual uh, powers, Lord, in prayer, in Bible reading, Lord, in good works. Please, Lord, have your way within our lives. Lord, those areas where we are weak, strengthen us. Lord, those areas where we are in sin, help us to repent and to turn from them. Convict us of those areas. Lord, we thank you that you did everything for us. Lord, you gave your life. Lord, you laid it down as a, a, a lamb before its slayers is silent. So, so were you, Lord. Oh, we are so grateful. Lord, we pray that, that your kingdom would come. Please grant us the resignation, the ability to submit to your will despite the outward appearances, despite what might happen. We think of our brethren throughout the world. We think of the the, um, the Canadian pastors, Lord, who are in prison simply because of their love for you. We pray, Lord, that your plans and your purposes would be fulfilled. We pray for their release. But, Lord, also we pray that you would build your kingdom. Lord God, we pray that you would be glorified. Lord, we ask this for your glory and your glory alone in Jesus' precious name. Amen.